The affidavit the FBI used to get a warrant to search former President Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago is now public. A redacted version of the document was released by a federal court in Florida. We'll take a look at what it reveals. It's Friday, August 26th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, new abortion bans are bringing back painful memories for a generation of women who grew up before Roe versus Wade. The new posthumous Selena album out today uses technology to alter the singer's voice. Some fans are protesting the move to make her voice sound more mature. And this summer's dry spell in the state is what some experts are calling a flash drought. This kind of year-to-year variability that we see in precipitation seems to be becoming more pronounced. How the lack of rain is affecting farmers and maybe a preview of our region's climate future. That's still to come. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Preliminary closing numbers on Wall Street show the Dow down more than 1,000 points. It's a loss of 3%. And the NASDAQ down 497 points. That's a loss of nearly 4%. This after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell pledged to keep raising interest rates until he and his colleagues are confident that inflation is under control. NPR Scott Horsley reports Powell delivered a forceful message at an economic conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Powell says the central bank has an unconditional responsibility to get inflation under control. He says Fed policymakers will keep raising interest rates until that's accomplished, even if that results in some short-term hardship, such as slower economic growth and higher unemployment. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. New numbers from the Commerce Department show that inflation eased somewhat in July. Powell called that a welcome development, but warned it'll take more than one month of improving price data to show that inflation is coming down. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration says the estimated cost of student debt relief will be in the billions of dollars. Our estimate is that the debt relief proposal will reduce average annual receipts in the student loan program by about $24 billion a year over the next 10 years. Barat Ramamorte, Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, says it will be paid for in full by the deficit reduction this year and that the debt relief will help middle-class Americans. This week, President Biden said he would forgive $20,000 in student loan debt for borrowers who had Pell Grants and 10000 for those who did not. The plan applies to those who earn less than $125,000 a year. The Department of Justice has released a heavily redacted version of the affidavit that the FBI used to execute a search warrant on the home of former President Donald Trump. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the department pushed to keep the document sealed during its ongoing investigation. The more than 30-page affidavit was heavily redacted to protect witnesses and the Justice Department's ongoing investigation into classified documents that ended up at Trump's Florida estate. The affidavit shows that the FBI had probable cause to believe that highly classified material would be found at the residence. According to the document, records related to national defense were found among 15 boxes that the National Archives had obtained from Mar-a-Lago earlier this year. Some of those documents were intermixed with other files, prompting the archives to refer the case to the DOJ. Trump has claimed without evidence that the search was politically motivated. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. 
And the Dow is down 1,008 points right now. That's down 3%. The NASDAQ is down 497 points. That's nearly 4%. And the S&P 500 down 141. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Strong thunderstorms are approaching the Boston area. A severe thunderstorm warning is up until 4.30 for an area from Worcester east to Boston and south to Rhode Island. There are heavy downpours now and gusty winds right over Framingham, Westboro, and Upton. The storms may also include some hail. The drought in Massachusetts shows no sign of abating, even with the storms out there today. The dry stretch follows droughts in 2020 and 2016. UMass Amherst hydrology professor David Bout says climate change may be increasing the frequency of drought. The patterns that we see here in air temperature and precipitation really can be related to patterns in the global atmospheric circulation. Bout says climate change can also cause extremely wet years and flooding. Climate experts say the seesaw is hard on farmers, on ecosystems, and on public infrastructure. Cambridge-based drug maker Moderna is suing competitors Pfizer and BioNTech. Moderna claims the two companies stole its proprietary technology to create a COVID vaccine. Both Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech's vaccines use messenger RNA to provoke the immune system into strengthening its defenses against the coronavirus. The lawsuit seeks compensation from the rival companies. Pfizer says it will vigorously defend itself and says its vaccine was based on technology that it developed with BioNTech. Massachusetts' two U.S. senators say local bans that prevent police departments from hiring chiefs out from outside those departments are harmful. Waltham and Revere have such bans. A WBUR investigation with ProPublica revealed the policy in Revere resulted in the city's police department promoting to chief an officer previously accused of bullying and sexual harassment. Senator Ed Markey says the Revere ordinance raises civil rights concerns and that local and state officials should lift the bans. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants the rules to be reexamined to ensure for fairness in hiring. Once again, a severe thunderstorm warning's in effect for large swaths of Massachusetts and Rhode Island, also parts of Connecticut, until 4.30. And then look for more storms through the night tonight. We should have some downed power lines and limbs, possibly localized flooding as well. For the overnight, lots of clouds around, temperatures about 69, sunny over the weekend. WBUR supporters include Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. New abortion bans are taking effect across the country this week, some with virtually no exceptions. The nation has seen these kinds of laws before. And in a moment, NPR's Sarah McCammon is going to bring us one woman's story about living at a time when there was no right to an abortion, even for victims of rape. But first, I want to ask Sarah to round up the new developments this week. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. All right. So walk us through where these new abortion bans have kicked in this week and and what the impact is so far. So yesterday, Texas, Tennessee, and Idaho all saw trigger laws take effect. These, of course, are those laws written in anticipation of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now, these are taking effect in states, Mary Louise, that already had abortion restrictions in place. But these new laws make providing most or all abortions a felony and providers could face jail time. 
A North Dakota judge also this week blocked that state's trigger ban. That was set to take effect today, but it's on hold at least for now. Okay. Elizabeth Smith with the Center for Reproductive Rights says when you look at the map, abortion access increasingly looks like a patchwork system depending on geography. Without federal protection for abortion rights, access is completely determined by where someone lives and their ability to leave their state if there's no access in their state. So now at least 11 states have total or near total abortion bans, along with several others like Georgia that still have early restrictions starting around six weeks of pregnancy. Right. And again, you said 11 states now with total or near total bans. Any exception for rape or incest? Some of them do. In Texas and Tennessee, though, there are no exceptions for rape or incest. And those are just the latest states to implement laws along those lines. You may remember the case of a 10-year-old girl this summer who had become pregnant as a result of rape and had to travel to Indiana from her home state of Ohio, which has a near-total abortion ban, no exception for rape. In the aftermath of that case, I interviewed a woman named Elaine who had come forward to tell her story about what happened to her many years ago. And just a warning, the story does contain references to sexual assault. Elaine says when she saw those news stories about the 10-year-old in Ohio this summer, it was hard for her to look away. Well, I knew it was coming. I knew that it was only a matter of time before someone like me hit the news and that a doctor would, would go public on the effects of these laws. And I was sad and angry. That doctor was Caitlin Bernard, an OBGYN in Indiana. Her story about a young patient who was unable to get an abortion at home in Ohio after a ban there took effect prompted backlash from conservative leaders. Without producing any evidence, Indiana's Republican attorney general questioned the doctor's credibility and threatened to investigate her. For Elaine, the story took her back to 1969, when she was just 11, a sixth grader growing up in Amarillo, Texas, the youngest of five in a big Catholic family. I was a tomboy. I liked sports. I rode my bike everywhere. I walked miles and miles and miles barefoot. I was kind of precocious. I was kind of the class clown, actually. Now 65 and living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Elaine has asked us to call her only by her middle name because she fears her family could face backlash from her telling the story from her childhood. I shared a room with my 14-year-old sister, and we went to bed at about 10 p.m., And at about one in the morning, all of a sudden, I saw the door open to our bedroom. A man snuck in and climbed into her bed. As her sister slept across the room, Elaine says the man raped her, threatening to kill her unless she stayed quiet. Eventually, her sister did wake up and chased the man out of the house. That's when Elaine says all hell broke loose as her parents and the rest of her siblings also woke up to her screaming. My mom called the police and our family doctor, and he examined me, and I didn't know this until I got the police reports recently, but he reported to the police that I had, in fact, been raped. So that's what happened that night. In a police report dated January 15, 1969, 2.58 a.m., Elaine and her family recounted those events to Amarillo police. The report, reviewed by NPR, describes the suspect as a white man between 20 and 30 years old. He was never caught, but the trauma from that night would stay with Elaine in her mind and her body long afterward. One of my sisters told me many years later that after I got back from the hospital, 
I was taking a bath, of course, and I was singing in the bathtub. And knowing what I know now, I think that's a pretty good indication that I was dissociative, that I had checked out. Elaine was in the early stages of puberty and didn't know what to look out for after the rape. But her mother was paying attention. Several weeks later, around the time of Elaine's 12th birthday in April, her mother said they needed to go back to the doctor. And she took me to our family doctor, the same one that examined me in the hospital, and the same doctor who had delivered me 11 years before. Elaine says she didn't understand then what was happening. But now, as a retired pharmacist, she does. My mom just said, we've got to, you know, fix some problems down there. And I said, okay, you're fine. And what I remember about that was the pain. And I didn't know what he was doing, but now, through adult eyes, looking, and with a medical background, I know that he was curataging. My anesthesia was squeezing my mother's hand. It, it didn't take long, but it was painful. It was dilation and curatage, a common abortion procedure known as DNC. Elaine says her mother explained what had happened a few years later when she was in her mid-teens. When she reflects on it now, she says she's grateful for how her mother, who died in 2010, handled an impossible situation. And she says she understands that some people have strong moral objections to abortion. My mother was very Catholic. And this is what I would point out to people who have this kind of theoretical vision of how they would react in this kind of a situation. I'm here to tell you, in this kind of a situation, you would throw out your religion in half a second. There's no question. It's easy to say what other people should do when it's theoretical. She couldn't fully face the trauma from her experience for many years after she became a mother. When I turned 40 and I had an 11-year-old daughter, a lot of my grief was really realizing what it must have been like for my mother to go through something like that. I looked at my own 11-year-old daughter. There, I, I can't blame my mother for anything. She did the best she could in a terrible situation. So she did the right thing. Elaine spent about three years in therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And she says she's sharing her story now because she wants to make clear that these situations do happen, even if people would rather not think about them. I think... A big part of the reason why we're seeing these draconian laws is because it's been 50 years since Roe was passed and a few generations have grown up and enough people in today's society don't remember what it was like pre-Roe. In 1969, abortion was illegal in Texas except to save a pregnant woman's life as it is again now. While the rape itself was thoroughly documented by Amarillo police at the time, no such records of the abortion appear to exist. Elaine's doctor died decades ago, and abortions were often carried out in secret, says historian Leslie Regan, author of the book When Abortion Was a Crime. She says people who had resources or connections could sometimes find doctors who discreetly offer the procedure if the doctor felt it was warranted. Something like this where the patient knows the doctor, the doctor knows the patient and the family, they could be very sympathetic to the situation, which means they would do it. I mean, my guess would be he probably never wrote anything down about this. 
because why would he? NPR spoke to two family members who say they remember hearing about the rape for years, including one who recalls discussing the abortion more recently. Regan says what's happening now looks very much like a repeat of the past. This is the result. This is going to be one of the results. The other results are some people will go all the way through pregnancies and bear children and will be forced into birth. Elaine says she sometimes thinks about what would have happened to her without her family doctor if she'd been forced to continue the pregnancy as a sixth grader, still reeling from the trauma of rape. But I probably would have been shipped off somewhere to have the baby. But for me, being four foot ten, 100 pounds, it would have been a guaranteed C-section. No question. Just the thought of that is just abhorrent. Now retired with three grown children, living with her husband in a house high on a hill overlooking the mountains around Santa Fe, Elaine says she feels compelled to speak up for girls like her who can't. What these children need above all is for it to be over. They need the trauma to stop. If I were to meet Dr. Bernard's 10-year-old patient, I would take her face in my hands and I would look in her eyes and I would say, this was not your fault. This was a bad, bad man who did this to you. And you're going to have a lot of people who love you, who are going to help you get through this, and you're going to be okay. Not your fault. More than 50 years later, Elaine says she got through her unthinkable experience with support from her family and a doctor willing to risk breaking the law to help her. Reporting there from NPR's Sarah McCammon. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, what you should know if you're hoping for student loan cancellation. That story is coming up next. A deep dive for stocks on Wall Street. The Dow sank 3 percent, more than 1,000 points, to finally settle at 32,283. S&P lost 3 and a third percent. It finished the session at 4,058. The Nasdaq fell even more, almost 4 percent, to close at 12,142. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Shares in Burlington-based Everbridge, Inc. rose 17 percent in trading today. That surge follows a report from Bloomberg that the tech company is exploring a sale. Everbridge creates software that helps organizations manage crises and emergencies by way of tools such as public notification text messages. It's 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today. And with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. Check out WBR's recommendations for summer books with a New England twist. Sign up for our pop-up newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org slash beachbooks.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at prompt.com. In the forecast, suddenly it looks like nighttime in the Boston area. Thunder and lightning, some heavy rain from Boston just west to Boston as well, including Newton. There is a severe thunderstorm warning in effect for large parts of Massachusetts and Rhode Island until 4.30 today. Overnight tonight, a few leftover showers, lingering clouds, about 68 for a low. Then things dry up for the weekend, mostly sunny, breezy Saturday and Sunday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. You've probably heard the top line numbers on the Biden administration's student debt forgiveness plan by now. Up to $10,000 of loans can get canceled if you are an individual making under $125,000 per year. Up to $20,000 of your loans can get canceled if you also went to a school on a Pell Grant. Those are grants for students from low-income families. But when you start to get into the details, well, this program, it seems like it gets more complicated. That might be why Education Secretary Miguel Cardona name-checked a URL not once, but twice when we spoke to him this week. So what we're asking folks to do is visit studentaid.gov slash debtrelief and sign up for automated emails so that more information can come. Well, if you prefer interviews to automated emails, we're going to talk through some of the key questions that borrowers might have right now. And for that, I'm joined by NPR education reporter Sequoia Carrillo and Carolina Rodriguez, director of the Education Debt Consumer Assistance Program, which helps New Yorkers navigate student loan repayment. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I suppose one key question In all of this is who exactly qualifies, right? And Sequoia, I'd love to go to you for that because I know that $125,000 is the annual income threshold for individuals, but a lot of people's income, it's fluctuated, right, during the Mm -hmm. pandemic. So how is the federal government going to determine what your official annual income is? Yeah, this is a great question and one I've been hearing from borrowers a lot. And in a White House press call right after the announcement, they mentioned that if your annual income was below the threshold in either 2020 or 2021, then you could qualify, but it is yet to be formally announced. So Mm -hmm. once we have that paper in front of us that we know it's set, I would feel fully secure in it. But for right now, that's kind of what we're hearing. But we have to remember there isn't even a system yet really for this. So we're in the early (laughs) stages. I mean, in terms of who is included in this loan forgiveness program, what about like current students? And also what about parents who took out federal parent plus loans to put their children through school? Are they all included in this? So the good news is both are included, which is really exciting and a little bit surprising. For current students, it's pretty straightforward. They 
will qualify based on their parents' income as long as they are still claimed as dependents on their parents' taxes. For Parent PLUS loans, there is a little bit of a caveat. Only Parent PLUS loans managed by the Department of Education qualify, and this is unusual. Parent PLUS loans are not included in a lot of forgiveness programs, so there could be some odd situations around this one. It's just a tricky type of loan. Like, if a parent in their undergraduate degree took out a Pell Grant, then does their Parent PLUS loan that they took out after they'd already had their personal debt, does that count towards the $20,000 in forgiveness? We don't know yet. So Mm. Parent PLUS loans are a little bit trickier, but for current students, it is pretty cut and dry. It's based off of your parents' income. Can I chime in related to that? Absolutely. Because it's going to torture me. So one of the biggest concerns I have uh, in terms of what loans qualify, obviously the basic answer is loans held by the U.S. Department of Education. But there are still a lot of borrowers out there that do not have their loans held by the Department of Education. We're talking about FFEL and potentially Perkins loans. So those individuals, the good news is that they can consolidate their loans to make them into direct loans. And at that point, they would be eligible for cancellation. And I really worry that a lot of people are going to assume that all their loans qualify when in fact, some of them would need to take an additional step before they're eligible for cancellation. Okay. Important to note. Well, Carolina, just a very basic question for you. I can imagine since there was a pause during the pandemic on federal student loan repayment, a lot of people haven't looked up their balances in a while, right? Like, so real quick, where would I go to see what my balance is and and who I need to talk to about my loan? So there is one website that uh, I think it's really important to emphasize, and that is studentaid.gov. That is the government's national student loan database. So if you have a federal student loan, you're going to see it there. And the reason why I say that is the best source is because individuals may have, for example, different servicers. So if they go to their servicer account, they may be missing on loan information. So again, you definitely want to go in into studentaid.gov. If you have never created an account, you can actually create it. If you have an account and forgot your username or password, Password, it takes about five minutes to reset that and for you to be able not only to look at your current status in terms of federal loans, but also to determine if you ever got a Pell Grant. And that should be visible in your dashboard as soon as you log in into that account. Okay. Well, because student loan forgiveness has been a contentious issue among lawmakers for several years, one question I think a lot of people may have at this point is, well, how real and everlasting is this Biden plan? Like, Sequoia, do we know about any potential challenges to this plan already? So right now, we don't know of any concrete challenges. But for a long time, Republicans and some Democrats have been asking whether or not this is constitutional. So as soon as the press release went out, As soon as this went up on Twitter and the world found out about this program, journalists received a one-pager on how they are doing this. So they're citing the HEROES Act, which is an act that was passed in the wake of 9-11, and it gives the Secretary of Education authority to relieve citizens of debts in times of natural disaster and national emergency. This Mm. is the same act that the Trump administration relied on when they started the student loan payment pause back in 2020. So that's what we know on the government side. But on the student side, all you can do right now is wait, unfortunately. A borrower 
put it well to me recently when they said that they are cautiously optimistic, but they won't believe it until they see it with their own eyes. And I think that's kind of the way to go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, in terms of like how this program would get administered, I know like the Department of Education says it has income information for something like 8 million borrowers. So those people would get this loan cancellation automatically, I hear. Other people are going to have to apply. Carolina, with respect to people who most need this kind of debt relief, what concerns do you have about their ability to clear all the hurdles, all the bureaucracy, and actually get the help they need? It's a real concern. I think whenever people have to take action steps, for example, like providing income information, it's a real hurdle uh, in part because chances are they're going to have to log in, create an account, use technology. And the people that are really struggling to keep up with the paperwork, to keep up with the loans, can do that. Uh, They either lack the information they need to do it successfully, or sometimes there's a digital divide and they don't have access to the technology to do so. So I am really concerned about that. Uh, That is top of mind where I'm going to have to create some type of outreach plan that, again, makes sure uh, we do not leave those who really will benefit from this relief um, out just because they couldn't apply or they couldn't apply on time or provide the correct paperwork. That was Carolina Rodriguez of New York's Education Debt Consumer Assistance Program and Sequoia Carrillo of the NPR Education Team. Thank you to both of you so much. Thank Thank you. you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBR. Some loud thwacks of thunder out there in the Boston area. Flashes of lightning, too. The rain and gusty winds could do some damage to trees, so beware of falling limbs. The Boston area now is being drenched with rain as the thunderstorms uh, pass overhead. Storms are now from Boston west to Framingham and south to Rhode Island. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden marked Women's Equality Day by hosting an event at the White House. Biden says he's pushing to codify the tenets of Roe v. Wade after the Supreme Court struck down the law two months ago. But the president says he needs voters to make their voices heard during the midterm elections in November. We're short a handful of votes and passed the House, but in the Senate we're short. And the only way it's going to happen is if the American people make it happen in November. Biden blasted the new abortion restriction, saying it's going to be consequential in the fall elections as Democrats try to harness outrage over the issue. More than a dozen states have trigger bans, which 
were written and ready before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade back in June. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell strongly reaffirmed the Fed's commitment today to bringing down inflation. As Steve Beckner tells us, the central bank chief is warning that considerably higher interest rates will likely continue. Since it stopped holding the federal funds rate near zero in March, the Fed has raised that key money market rate four times to between two and a quarter and two and a half percent, hiking it by three quarters of a point in June and July. But with the economy slowing and inflation moderating from its peak, talk has grown that the Fed may slow the pace of rate hikes and perhaps even cut rates next year. But Powell dashed those hopes. Restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. Powell did not say how much the Fed will raise rates next month, but vowed it will keep tightening credit to lower inflation until the job is done. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. Well, as you can imagine, the markets reacted, finishing sharply lower across the board after the Fed chair said the central bank may soon or rather won't be easing uh, interest rate hikes. The Dow down 3%. This is NPR. Ongoing flooding in Sudan has killed more than 80 people. The U.N. says by the end of the rainy season next month, the number of people impacted by flooding could hit half a million. From Harare, Ishma Fundikwa reports. A Sudanese Red Crescent official told the Reuters news agency the rains had recently cut off more than 100 villages. Thousands of homes have been damaged or collapsed, while at least 3,000 people have sought shelter in makeshift camps. The government's efforts to provide assistance to those affected have been hampered by damage to the roads. Locals hit by the flooding complained of limited access to portable water. Drinking water has been contaminated by flood water, which is more than six feet deep in some places. For NPR News, I am Ishma Fundikwa in Harare. In Arizona, a federal judge today refused to require state officials there to count ballots by hand in the upcoming midterm elections in November. The judge dismissed a lawsuit by the Republican nominees for governor and secretary of state, saying it was based on false claims of problems with vote-counting machines. Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham won their GOP primaries in Arizona, repeating those unfounded allegations while refusing to acknowledge other legal challenges that failed to prove any widespread fraud in the 2020 election. On Wall Street, a down day. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullen. Severe weather is hitting the Boston area right now. Heavy downpours, gusty winds, thunder and lightning are all in the city now and westward out to Framingham and southward to Rhode Island. Some of the storms may contain hail. A severe thunderstorm warning is in effect in the area until 5.30. Originally, it was set to expire right about now. Massachusetts' top election official is heralding the success of mail-in voting so far this election cycle. There's a little more than a week to go until primary day. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says his office has received 670,000 requests for mail-in ballots. Of those, 200,000 Democratic ballots have been returned, as have 50,000 Republican ballots. We are continuing to see our great participation across the board, Democrats, Republicans, and particularly independents. Uh, Almost 50% of the persons requesting ballots to participate in the primary are unenrolled, therefore independents. So that's encouraging as well. Early in-person voting begins tomorrow and will last through next Friday. Hours and locations vary by municipality, but can be found on the Secretary of State's website. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
A new poll of likely Democratic voters in next month's primary in Massachusetts shows many still do not have any idea who they're going to vote for. About half of voters questioned have not even heard of some of the candidates running for office. Steve Cazella is president of Mass Inc. Polling that conducted the survey. He says one race that appears very close is for attorney general. We find this race at this moment basically a toss-up where, you know, Andrea Campbell earlier on in the race had a very significant, sizable lead. Shannon Liss-Riordan has spent a lot of her own money on advertising and on communications and so forth, and it seems like that's having an impact. Right now, Liss-Riordan has a 28 to 26 percent lead over Campbell, with Quentin Palfrey trailing at 10 percent. Gazella says there are enough undecided voters that anything could still happen in several races. Since the Orange Line shut down one week ago, the Boston area ride-sharing network Blue Bikes has seen a major spike in users. More than 17,000 new free monthly passes have been issued in the week since the Orange Line went offline. Dominic Trebone, uh, the general manager of Blue Bikes, says that is more than expected, and he's pleased, he says, that so many people are trying the bikes. Downtown and Back Bay have seen major increases in riders. On a percentage basis, the largest increases have been in Hyde Park, Roslindale, and JP, which makes sense given that those are the areas most affected by the Orange Line shutdown. Blue bike passes are free through September 18th. And the man who began what became known as Operation Flags for Vets has passed away. Paul Monty of Rainham was a gold star father. His son Jared was killed in Afghanistan during the Taliban ambush in 2006 and posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Paul Monty began Operation Flag for Vets when he visited his son's grave and there were no flags on the veterans' graves. The cemetery said it was too hard to maintain them. Monty was able to get them to change their minds and the organization was born to place flags on veterans' graves. This evening, American Legion Post 405 in Rainham will hold a memorial for Monty's family. Again, there is a severe thunderstorm warning in effect for a large swath of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. It's now in effect until 5.30. Thunderstorm watch will remain in effect until 8 o'clock tonight. Overnight tonight, leftover showers, lingering clouds about 69 degrees, and things dry up in time for the weekend. It is 70 degrees now in Boston at 437. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The affidavit the FBI used to get a warrant to search former President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago is now public. A redacted version of the document was released around noon today by a federal court in Florida. And NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas has been going through it. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. So what have you learned from the pages that are not blacked out? Well, this gives us the the best peek behind the curtain yet of the FBI's investigation into how all these documents ended up at Mar-a-Lago after Trump left the White House. The affidavit tells us uh, some of what we already knew, uh, that the FBI's investigation began with a referral in February from the National Archives after the archives recovered 15 boxes of materials from Mar-a-Lago in January. Uh, The affidavit says there were news articles and printouts and photos and notes and personal records in those boxes. But also tossed in with them were a bunch of classified materials, everything just thrown together. 
The FBI went through it. The affidavit says there were 184 classified documents, including 92 that were at the secret level, 25 that were top secret. And some of the documents had select classification markings indicating that they relate to clandestine human sources, so spies. Uh, Others related to signals intelligence, which would be the U.S. monitoring uh, of foreign communications. This is all extremely sensitive stuff. It's considered national defense information. And the mishandling of that is part of what the FBI is investigating here. All right. So that gives us some sense of why the Justice Department may have been so concerned that it took the unprecedented step of searching Mar-a-Lago. Does the affidavit say what drove that decision? Well, that's definitely one of the main things that we were looking for in the affidavit. We know the Justice Department was concerned uh, about that, uh, concerned that Trump hadn't turned over all of the the government documents. Uh, And there's a section in the affidavit that's devoted to explaining why there was probable cause to believe that documents with classified uh, information and presidential records remained at Mar-a-Lago. Almost all of that section is blacked out. But we do know from the property receipt that was released after the search that the FBI did recover more classified documents at Mar-a-Lago when it conducted its search there. About half of this affidavit is blacked out, dozens of pages. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it surprising that that much has been redacted? It's not, no. Attorneys familiar with these sorts of situations have been warning that this would likely be the case. And remember, the Justice Department didn't want any of this affidavit made public. Normally, these affidavits aren't released unless and until someone is charged with a crime. And that, of course, has not happened here. Uh, An affidavit, in a way, is, as the Justice Department described it, uh, a roadmap of their investigation. And releasing it, the DOJ said, could undermine that investigation. But the Justice Department also argued that the affidavit contained sensitive information. It warned that releasing it could expose government witnesses who might then be endangered, might be reluctant to talk. Uh, And we got a little nugget of information on that front today from another document that was also unsealed. And in that document, the Justice Department says that there are a, quote, significant number of civilian witnesses who have provided information to the government. Hmm. At one point, Trump called for this affidavit to be released. Now that it's out, what has he said? Well, Trump put out a statement on his social media platform uh, shortly after this was released in which he says the affidavit is heavily redacted. uh, And he calls all of this a public relations subterfuge, essentially, by the government. And he attacks the judge who ordered this document to be released. Uh, This is a strategy that we've seen Trump employ for years now against the Justice Department and the FBI and others who are scrutinizing uh, his actions. He's ramped that up since the Mar-a-Lago search. Uh, It's a strategy he's likely to continue as this investigation moves forward. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas, thank you. Thank you. To music now, Selena became an international superstar in the 1980s and 90s for her warm stage presence and emotional singing style. She died in 1995 when she was only 23. And now a new album of remixes, it's out today, and it uses digital technology to age her voice. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports some Selena fans are not happy. Selena was a teenager when she first recorded this song, Dame Tu Amor, in 1986. On the new album, Moonchild Mixes, the singer sounds like this. Her voice is pitched down a semitone. It's also fuller, especially at the low end. Si me quieres, dímelo. 
Selena's family worked with Warner Music Latina on the new release. Here's her father, Abraham Quintanilla. And we worked on her vocal tracks to make her sound more mature. It'll make you think that she recorded the songs this morning. But some people aren't on board with the Quintanilla family's approach, like Brandon Hunter, a diehard Selena fan who lives in Tampa, Florida. I have Beady Beady Bomb Bomb as the ringtone on my phone. Hunter says he would have preferred the new album to include rare releases from Selena's back catalogue, not heavily produced remixes of hits. Her voice is timeless, you know? Don't touch it. <laughs> I think people are uncomfortable that there's technologies that can do these things. That's speech scientist Rupal Patel. She says the use of digital audio processing technologies is now ubiquitous in pop music production. And she notes the producers of Moonchild Mixes haven't created a whole new synthetic voice or voice clone for Selena. They've just tweaked her original tracks. Siempre voy pensando, pensando en ti. But Patel says the singing voice carries so much emotional weight, it can make people acutely sensitive, even to tiny changes in the voice of the singers they love. Whereas for speech, we're listening for the information content. For music, we're listening for the pleasure, how it moves us. Also, Patel says, there's the fact Selena isn't around today to give consent to her new, mature-sounding voice. Was she someone who would never want to be seen or heard in a way that sounds older than she is, or unauthentically her than what she was? The Quintanilla family did not respond to NPR's questions about the ethics of manipulating Selena's voice. Neither did they address the fans' criticisms. Instead, Selena's sister Suzette Quintanilla offered this defense of the new album. This is just breathing life into older music for the new generation. Many Selena fans, old and new, are all for it, including 18-year-old University of Chicago student Vivian Benishek. We have the original recordings, right? For example, one of them is Salta la Ranita. It's a really funny song about a frog that she did when she was so young. And now I'm looking forward to hearing it fast forward years later with a different sound. Benishek bought the album as soon as it dropped and says she's planning a listening party with her friends this weekend. I'm Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from OCLC through worldcat.org. Committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at worldcat.org. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. You can see signs of the drought in Massachusetts nearly everywhere you look. Maybe your lawn is a crisp brown. Maybe you smelled the smoke from one of the 100 or so wildfires this month. Maybe a river near you is down to a trickle. It's a strange whiplash after the rain-soaked summer we had last year. But as WBR's Miriam Wasser reports, weather extremes are likely part of our climate future, and that includes what are called flash droughts. 
To put it bluntly, it kind of just stopped raining this summer. Parts of the Northeast that typically get nine inches over June, July, and August have gotten a fraction of that. On Dave Dumresk's vegetable farm in Dracut, things are pretty bad. The corn stalks are brown and the ears are smaller than usual. Instead of a carpet of green leaves, the potato field is patchy. So we're basically at the, at the point now where we're selecting which crops to continue to grow and which crops to basically allow to suffer. Take the corn. He staggers the planting and harvesting and has gotten two okay pickings so far. But the next two, he says, are a crapshoot. So basically I'm not watering those uh, last two plantings. Uh, I'm hoping for rain. Dumeresk is the founder and owner of Farmer Dave's. The 100-acre, mostly organic farm is spread out across five properties in northeast Massachusetts, one of the epicenters of the drought this summer. Dumeresk relies on small man-made ponds for irrigation water. He peers over the rocky edge of one of them. Twelve feet down, a gasoline-powered pump grumbles as it sucks up the liquid dregs. The water that's left is only a couple inches deep. And I told the guys, I'm, I'm just like, do whatever you have to do to drain these ponds as quick as possible because the water's not helping the crops sitting in the pond. The pond is fed by groundwater. He says that this summer, it takes about two days for it to refill two feet, far below what it would normally be. Farming in much of New England right now is a game of risk, a series of ongoing calculations and tough decisions. Does he completely neglect the corn to give the potatoes the water they need? And what about the asparagus? It won't be ready to harvest until next spring. Basically, I'm letting the asparagus go, but I know that I'm reducing next spring's harvest to try to get more potatoes for this winter. Dumeresk is not alone. The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources says that farmers across the state are struggling with this year's drought. Many have reported significant crop losses or seen their hay fields dry up. It's reminiscent of the droughts in 2020 and 2016, and it's in sharp contrast to last summer and the summer of 2018 when New England got a ton of rain. This kind of year-to-year variability that we see in precipitation seems to be becoming more pronounced. David Bout is a hydrology professor at UMass Amherst. He says if you look back in history, it's typical for the Northeast to have wet periods and dry periods. Generally speaking, you know, we would have a dry period, let's say, once in every 10 years. But in the last decade or so, things have changed. He says we're seeing more frequent, rapid onset, and acute droughts, what some experts are calling flash droughts. Complicating matters further, this year's drought may have started before some groundwater aquifers had fully recovered from the 2020 drought. So farmers like Dumeresk may have started off this year at a hydrological disadvantage. Scientists say it's hard to attribute any of this directly to climate change, but as humans warm the planet, we're changing the atmospheric patterns that shape our weather systems. And our weather extremes are getting more extreme. Nowadays, when we think about drought conditions, it's not just the water, but it's also how hot the temperatures are. And so flash droughts and high temperatures and dry air kind of go together. Leslie Ann Dupini-Giroux is the Vermont State Climatologist and a professor at the University of Vermont. She says drought is a systems-level phenomenon. Temperature, humidity, soil moisture, the rate at which surface water evaporates, even how much water plants suck in through their roots and exhale as vapor. It all matters. So do rainfall patterns. 
In the Northeast, we're seeing more quick and heavy rainstorms because of climate change. It's hard for the water from these sudden downpours to absorb into the soil. This means more of it ends up as runoff. Back on Dumeresk's farm in Dracut, the new normal is uncertainty and added costs. A drought year like this summer can cost him an extra sixty dollars to $100,000. He has to hire extra people to run the irrigation equipment, and he runs the pumps constantly. Yeah, so you have the increased labor costs, you have the increased fuel costs, and then you also have the increased maintenance costs and purchase costs of replacement equipment. Despite all this, Dumeris considers himself lucky. He's been investing in drip irrigation and no-till farming equipment. So his operation already uses less water than it might otherwise. He's also expanding some of his irrigation ponds to help hedge against drought years in the future. And you always hope that the rains are going to start to fall eventually? Until then, he says he'll just keep pumping whatever water he can get. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. This is 90.9 WBUR. Could have another 45 minutes or so of thunder rumbling in the Boston area. A severe thunderstorm warning is up until 5.30 for the Boston area, stretching to Lynn, Brockton, and Quincy. Storms are bringing downpours and 60-mile-an-hour winds on a line from Lynn, north of Boston, to Franklin, to the south. Those storms are moving eastward now. When they exit the area tonight, we should have cloudy skies, lows about 70. Tomorrow and Sunday, sunny and pretty nice. Highs in the upper 70s. It is 73 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. It's 4.53. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. By Condental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. And Porter Square Books, Boston Edition, at the Seaport Summer Market, September 16th to 18th. Bestsellers, staff favorites, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. Oh, what's that beachfront property you say? Nice. Climate change, though? But, you know, the idea of just taking the entire oceanfront and moving it, you know, upstream to to a high point just doesn't make sense to me. I'm Kai Rizdal, Managed Retreat in Montauk, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hospitals and doctors around the country are facing harassment, even death threats, over the medical care they offer to transgender kids. In many cases, they have been the subject of posts by a Twitter account called Libs of TikTok. Despite the threats and harassment, this account continues to post fresh material, which may tell us something about what major online platforms, such as Twitter, consider to be threatening behavior. NPR's Shannon Bond has been following this. Hey there. Hi. Okay, tell me a little bit more about this account, Libs of TikTok. Yeah, so this is an account with 1.3 million Twitter followers, and it regularly reposts videos and social media posts from regular people, teachers, schools, and institutions. And often these are taken out of context and framed to fuel outrage and to cast LGBTQ people as pedophiles. 
And, you know, Mary Louise, this comes amid, you know, a broader rise in anti-LGBTQ sentiment on the right. And this account has become very influential. These videos it posts often end up on Fox News. And where do children's hospitals come into this picture? Well, in the past few weeks, this account has been posting a lot about children's hospitals, as you said, that provide health care to transgender kids. And in some cases, it's made false claims, like that hospitals are performing gender-affirming hysterectomies on young children. And I want to stop here to emphasize that this is not true. The hospitals say they do not do these surgeries specifically on patients under the age of 18. But the hospitals say these posts have sparked this wave of harassment and threats. I spoke with Dr. Angela K. Gepfert, who runs the gender health program at Children's Minnesota in Minneapolis. That hospital has not been targeted, but they've been watching this all play out. So I think the fact that it, you know, has somewhere the message has gotten through that it's okay to attack um, physicians, pediatricians, children's hospitals in this way um, is just a really disturbing societal trend. And yet, Shannon, the attacks continue. Um, This account continues to post. Is Twitter doing anything about this? Does Twitter consider this harassment? I mean, it's kind of hard to tell, right? So Twitter, as well as Facebook and Instagram, where this account also posts, they all have rules against hate speech, harassment, including what's called brigading, where people coordinate to pile onto a target. The thing is, the libs of TikTok account isn't making direct threats itself, but these posts appear to be encouraging other people to do so. And we've seen other instances where this account has posted about pride events, drag story hours at public libraries, and then right-wing extremist groups have shown up in those places. So this question, you know, for the platforms is, is libs of TikTok responsible for any of this impact? Now, Twitter and Facebook wouldn't comment on the account, and I did reach out to the account owner for comment. She replied. She said she was open to an interview, but then she didn't respond when I tried to schedule it and didn't respond to any of my written questions. Hmm. What sort of impact has this had on, on hospitals, on doctors who work there? I mean, you can imagine it's been very difficult. This, of course, affects the safety of staff at hospitals. It's a resource drain to deal with these kinds of threats. And then there are wider ripple effects, right? I mean, there are impacts on patients who need this evidence-based medical care. And it affects other patients, too. If hospitals' communications or websites get overwhelmed because of the volume of threats that they're, that they're receiving. And so, you know, there's a lot to contend with here. Providers I spoke with say they're worried that there could be a chilling effect if transgender healthcare is even more stigmatized than it already is, that this could change how doctors practice, and then it could make it harder to get funding for research into the best care. Okay. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks, Mary Louise. NPR Shannon Bond. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. 
price and coverage match limited by state law. This is 90.9 WBUR. There is a severe thunderstorm warning still in effect. It is until 530 and covers a large swath of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Overnight tonight, after the storms move out, maybe a few leftover showers, lingering clouds, about 69. Then things dry up in time for the weekend. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, breezy, highs about 77. Then just as nice on Sunday, highs nudging 80 degrees. The uh, game at Fenway Park is still on schedule for 7-10 tonight. It's game one of a three-game set against Tampa Bay. Michael Walker throws the first pitch tonight. This is WBUR. The time is 4.59. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell pledges he and his colleagues will keep raising interest rates until they're confident that inflation is under control. Today a Wall Street, uh, uh, on Wall Street, stocks took a dive. The Dow and S&P lost more than 3%. The Nasdaq sank 4%. It's Friday, August 26th. This is All Things Considered. Also ahead, a year ago, 13 Marines and more than 100 Afghans died when a bomb exploded at the Kabul airport. We're still hearing stories from the frenetic last days of the American evacuation. Low water levels across the world are giving scientists a rare chance to look at previously underwater artifacts, including ancient dinosaur tracks. Those tracks have three large toes. Think about a dinner plate and, and add three or four inches on some of them. How scientists are getting a glimpse of the past thanks to drought. Also, we'll remember the iconic jazz Hammond organ player Joey D. Francesco. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Remarks from Fed Chair Jerome Powell at an economic event in Jackson Hole, Wyoming today sent investors fleeing for cover. That's after he suggested the Fed will be pushing interest rates higher for a bit longer. Restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. The historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. Powell said the central bank is determined to fight inflation through more sharp interest rate hikes, which he said could cause pain for Americans in the form of a weaker economy and job losses. But the Fed chair said failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. All three of the major U.S. stock market indices, meanwhile, plunged 3 percent or more today, the worst day for blue chips in three months. The Dow was down more than 1,000 points to 32,283. The Nasdaq fell 497 points. The S&P 500 dropped 141 points. A redacted version of the affidavit used to get a warrant to search former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence has been made public. As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports, large sections of the document have been blacked out to protect the ongoing investigation. The more than 30-page affidavit states that the government is conducting a criminal investigation into the improper removal and storage of classified information, as well as the unlawful concealment or removal of government records. It states that the FBI has probable cause to believe that documents with classified national defense information and or presidential records remained at Mar-a-Lago ahead of the FBI search. Large chunks of text of the affidavit have been blacked out, including anything that relates to government witnesses, as well as the direction and scope of the investigation. 
Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The judge yesterday again blocked a trigger law banning abortion in North Dakota as he weighs arguments from the state's lone abortion facility that the law violates the state constitution. NPR's Sarah McCammon has more. The decision blocking North Dakota's abortion ban comes as three other states have seen their trigger bans take effect this week. Texas, Tennessee, and Idaho all had state laws take effect on Thursday that make providing an abortion a felony in most or all cases. And this is part of a larger trend nationwide. NPR's Sarah McCammon. Japanese electronics maker Panasonic is reported to be in discussions to build an additional $4 billion EV battery plant in the U.S. That's according to a report by the Wall Street Journal, which is citing people familiar with the matter. The company is said to be looking at Oklahoma as a possible location for the plant, though that would be pending an agreement. The report comes at a time that EV makers, including Tesla, have been boosting production volume and demand for batteries is expected to rise. The proposed plant would apparently be in addition to a another $4 billion facility, which the company announced back in July it intends to build in Kansas. The Oklahoma governor's office has declined comment on the story. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A strong line of thunderstorms is now pushing through an area just south of Boston. Quincy, Randolph, and Hull are getting hit with lightning, gusty winds, and heavy rain. In downtown Boston, the worst of the weather has now mostly moved offshore. The storms have led to some heavier-than-usual traffic delays on the expressway south of Boston. A severe thunderstorm warning remains in effect for most of the areas east of Route 128 until 5.30. Cambridge-based Moderna is suing rival biotech companies Pfizer and BioNTech. The company plans to file suit for patent infringement over their COVID-19 vaccine. Moderna officials allege the use of mRNA technology by Pfizer and BioNTech breaches patents the company holds. Moderna says it does not want the vaccine removed from the market. It wants a cut of the other company's sales from the shots. Pfizer says it will vigorously defend itself and says its vaccine was based on technology it developed with BioNTech. Today marks one year since 13 American service personnel were killed in a suicide bomb attack at Kabul Airport in Afghanistan during the withdrawal of American troops. Among those killed was Marine Sergeant Yohani Rosario Pacharda of Lawrence. To honor her, a 7-by-35-foot mural of the sergeant and other service members killed in the attack was unveiled at Lawrence Veterans Memorial Stadium this week. Pacharda was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal and the Purple Heart. Crews are making progress containing wildfires at Breakheart Reservation in Saugus. The efforts being helped in part by the rain. However, the park remains closed to the public because of the danger now posed by trees that have been burning. Dave Salino is chief fire warden with the state's Conservation and Recreation Department. Trees that got burnt out at the root systems or trees that had old fire scars in them that burn inside and then the trees uh, basically break off and come down and those become a hazard concern, uh, not only for the safety of the firefighters, but the safety of the public. Salino says about 70 trees have come down in the area in the last several days. Once again, the thunderstorm warning is in effect until 530 for parts of 128 east. And it uh, looks like overnight tonight, temperatures should be down around 70 degrees. Just a few leftover thunderstorms here and there. A lovely weekend coming up for the last weekend in August. Sunshine both tomorrow and Sunday. Highs in the 70s, upper 70s, just about 80 degrees on Sunday. 73 degrees now in the Boston area at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by OCLC through worldcat.org. Committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at worldcat.org.
is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We begin this hour with a story of 15 boxes. 15 boxes of documents handed over by former President Trump's team to the National Archives back in January. Inside, scattered among personal items, agents found 184 classified documents. So the National Archives contacted the Justice Department and FBI investigators suspected there might be more. That led to the search of Trump's Florida estate earlier this month, where they did indeed find more classified documents. Well, we learned details on all this today because the Justice Department has unsealed the affidavit that convinced a federal judge to approve that search. I want to bring in former federal prosecutor Andrew Weissman. He's also former general counsel at the FBI, and he has direct experience investigating cases that concern Donald Trump. He was one of the lead prosecutors on Robert Mueller's Russia probe. Andrew Weissman, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let's dig in on what, how we have managed to expand our knowledge. As of today, um, we got this affidavit 38 pages long. Is there anything that leaps out at you in terms of the length, in terms of the amount of redaction, anything just in terms of how this has been presented, released? A couple things. So it definitely fills in some of the timeline in terms of what we now know in terms of an extended period of time where the archives were beseeching the former president to return documents. It's not that the president just discovered these and realized, oh, I need to return them. There was a lengthy period of time that's referenced in the affidavit from May of 2021 till the end of December, where it's described as repeated requests by the archives to obtain these documents. And the other piece of that is that for people who think that the Department of Justice didn't act quickly enough, it also, I think, serves to explain that the department seems to have acted quite quickly. The department actually looks pretty darn good here in terms of what they were doing. And then I would say the other piece is they, you can understand why they acted so quickly, because as you referenced, not only were there 184 classified documents, but there were 25 documents that were at the very highest level of classification. And that, of course, could raise a ton of red flags as to whether the department believed there were still documents that could be just as confidential still at Mar-a-Lago. All right. Among the words that leapt out at me from this affidavit was the word clandestine, clandestine human sources, that that is part of what they worried might be in danger from these documents being unsecured and at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. You know, a good example of that is I was at the FBI and was the general counsel there when the Edward Snowden leak happened. And one of the consequences of that was it immediately put human intelligence, which is what you're referring to, at risk, meaning that people who were cooperating with the national security interests of the United States and providing information had to be immediately relocated and protected. In your view, does this affidavit move the needle on the likelihood or not of former President Trump potentially being charged with a crime? In one of the documents that's not the affidavit, but is actually the brief that the department filed, they actually specifically call out the concern about obstruction of justice and tampering with witnesses and concern about what could be done with respect to a significant number of civilian witnesses and a concern that 
the government described as particularly compelling here. The reason that's important to your question is that is the kind of crime that really exacerbates the considerations that the department has to make, not just of is the crime something that can be prosecuted, but should it be prosecuted? We're talking about all these classified documents. Does it even matter from a legal point of view under the Espionage Act or other codes that former President Trump might be investigated for? Does it matter if these documents are classified or not? From a technical legal matter, meaning if you were in a court of law proving this case against a defendant, it isn't required that any of this be classified. But where it is relevant is in the discretionary decision of the Department of Justice whether to charge somebody. For instance, if you were to find that somebody took the menu from a State Department dinner and it was government property and it shouldn't have been in your possession, it should have been returned, no one's going to make a federal case out of that. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about top secret compartmentalized information. Well, so as someone with a lot of experience at these type investigations, what now? What are you watching for next? What's the timeline we should prepare for? In terms of the big picture where many people, when they learned of the search, were thinking that this is a national security investigation, meaning that the main impetus for this is just recouping the documents. I think when you read the redacted affidavit, it makes it very clear that there was also an active criminal investigation. And everything we've learned since then in terms of what was found and the representations by the government to the court, that is something that is going to proceed apace, given the prominence and importance of this kind of investigation, that there is a lot of oversight from the attorney general and the deputy attorney general to see that this moves quickly. Andrew Weissman is a former Justice Department prosecutor and former general counsel at the FBI. Thank you. You're welcome. President Biden's announcement on federal student loan forgiveness fulfills part of a campaign promise. He and his party are trying to show voters that they can deliver ahead of the midterm elections. Some people are criticizing the plan from both ends of the political spectrum. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaran has been rounding up reaction. Hey there, Deepa. Hi. So what can you tell us about how voters are responding to this? Yeah, it's hard to say at this point exactly how this will all play out in November, but there is polling that shows that overall, this is a politically popular decision. I spoke with Andre Perry, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and he said that Biden is building on momentum from some of his earlier wins from this summer. He said people might not know immediately what the Inflation Reduction Act is, but when they hear student loan relief... They get it because student debt is getting in the way of purchasing a home, buying a car, paying for rent. You know, so it is a pocketbook issue for many Americans, and it's showing that he's taking action. And this is also something that could really turn out younger voters, which can really make a difference for Democrats in tight races. I spoke with one student at UNC Charlotte whose name is Sean Wiggs about this. And a lot of people who may have been apathetic about voting saying, hey, if the government actually works for me, then why would I not go and vote? Make sure people like the Democrats are in office. Okay, so that's why it might give Democrats a boost. But there's also been criticism. Tell us what form that takes. 
Right. So there are a lot of people who are saying that Biden's plan doesn't go far enough. There have been calls, particularly from the NAACP, for him to forgive even more debt. Here's Wisdom Cole, the director of the Youth and College Division at the NAACP, speaking to NPR this morning. You know, I think that 10,000 was a start. You know, 10,000 is, is not enough to meet the need, but it did show us that student debt cancellation is possible. And off the bat, Republicans have criticized this move from the president. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell called it astonishingly unfair and said it was a slap in the face to people who had already paid off their federal student loans or maybe chose not to go to college because they couldn't afford it. Democrats, for the most part, especially progressive lawmakers like Senator Elizabeth Warren, have applauded this decision and they say it's a good first step. You say for the most part, what divisions are there within the Democratic Party over this? Yeah, so there are some more moderate members of the party, particularly those who are up for election this year, who have given this new plan some mixed reviews. Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate in Ohio, released a statement saying that this announcement from Biden sends the wrong message to people in Ohio who don't have a college degree but are still trying to make ends meet. And Senator Michael Bennett, who's up for re-election in Colorado, also kind of distanced himself from this decision. He said immediate relief to families is important, but then he went on to say that this decision from Biden doesn't solve the underlying problems of the high cost of higher education in this country. And he also said that there wasn't really much of a plan on how the White House says they're going to pay for this. Recent estimates from the University of Pennsylvania say this plan could cost up to a trillion dollars. And Republicans and even some Democrats are already pointing out how this could make inflation worse. But it's still not entirely clear on how much of an impact on inflation this will have. How has President Biden responded to these criticisms? In responding to Republican criticism, Biden has said that he's not going to apologize for making any moves that will help lower and middle class Americans. And last night at the and last night, the White House really doubled down on that message. They sent out a tweet thread that went viral, calling out Republican members of Congress who criticized student loan forgiveness and said kind of, you know, you took out Paycheck Protection Program loans or PPP loans in the pandemic. It's definitely taken off online and progressive Democrats have applauded the decision to call out what they see as a double standard. But to be clear, those PPP loans were designed to not designed to be forgiven. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, that is NPR political reporter Deepa Shivram. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
coming up on WBUR, what we've learned in the year since 13 Marines and more than 100 Afghans died in a bomb blast at the Kabul airport during the frenzied American evacuation. That's coming up on All Things Considered. Today on Wall Street, stocks tanked. The Dow plummeted 3 percent, more than 1,000 points, to finally settle at 32,283. S&P lost 3 and a third percent. It finished the session at 4,058. The Nasdaq fell even more, almost 4 percent, to close at 12,142. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 519. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Tickets to WBUR City Space's fall season are on sale now, featuring notable guests including Nina Totenberg, Maggie Haberman, Eileen McNamara, Jacques Pepin, and Bill McKibben. Details are at WBUR.org events. The forecast things have gotten a little bit quieter in the Boston area. Strong storms that brought thunder, lightning, heavy rain, and gusty winds have mostly pushed offshore now. A severe thunderstorm warning that was in effect for the area has now been canceled. However, the National Weather Service says it's possible more storms may come through eastern and northern Northwestern Mass anytime between now and 8 o'clock. This is 90.9 WBUR, 73 degrees in the Boston area. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the American Lung Association and Pfizer, working together to raise awareness of pneumococcal pneumonia. Information on adult vaccinations for pneumococcal pneumonia is at lung.org slash pneumococcal. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One year ago today, 13 service members and more than 100 Afghans died when a bomb exploded at the Kabul airport. Though the last days of the American evacuation were marked by chaos, new details are emerging about how U.S. Marines took it on themselves to rescue as many people as possible, including a group of young female Afghan skateboarders. Steve Walsh with KPBS in San Diego has the story. Hey, stop short! Stop short! It's August 2021. Hundreds of Afghans crowd the Abbey Gate at the airport in Kabul, desperate for a way to get out as the Taliban takes over the city. The Afghans are forced into a canal as they press to get inside. It smells of desperation, right, the whole scene. You know, it's dirty sewage runoff, and it's just filthy, and they're just trying to get out. Marine Captain Andres Rodriguez is part of security at the gate. Scores of Marines have been rushed from Jordan just days before the Americans were scheduled to leave Afghanistan after 20 years. Several units decide to help Afghans desperate to flee. It just devolved quickly, where it's like, well... If no one else is going to do it, the Marines at 2-1 are going to do it. They're just going to, they're going to screen, they're going to help people, they're going to provide aid, they're going to do everything that they're being asked of. Back in the U.S., Marine vet Jeff Faniff is getting calls and texts from Rodriguez and other Marines he knows at Abbey Gate, asking his help locating paperwork for people outside the airport. 
Faneuf tweets his advice for getting into the airport, and then his phone starts to ring. Found myself having to ask again and again those Marines, hey, can you can you go out into the crowd and try and find so-and-so? I was fielding requests from everyone from, you know, uh, local Afghans whose husband or wife was trying to get through the crowd to colonels at the Pentagon who somehow got my phone number. I was like crying, texting, begging the girls to stay at the gate that I would we would figure it out. We would get them through. Corey Shepard Stern is a film producer from San Diego. In the days before the bombing a year ago, she began searching how to get a group of Afghans out who had been educating young girls there using skateboarding. It's safe here for girls to learn. The women gained global fame after being featured in the Oscar-winning short film about Skatistan. Shepard Stern wasn't involved in that film, but the group reached out to her. Many of the Afghan organizers felt that it was time for their families to leave, including Zainab Husini, who now lives in the United States. When I was at work, I heard the Taliban uh, enter to the city and uh, everything was just changed. And uh, me and my husband decided to leave the country. Husini is speaking publicly for the first time about their experience then. She made it through the airport gate once but was turned back when there was no room on an Australian flight. The next day, she took a red umbrella, a signal for the Marines to spot her in the crowd. Whoever entered to the airport was safe. It was under the control of U.S. government, and it was like guaranteeing your life. Back in the U.S., Corey Shepard Stern and Jeff Faneuf were celebrating getting one last group through the airport. When news came that 13 troops and more than 100 Afghans died in an explosion outside the airport. And then when the bomb went off at Abbey Gate and just this like terrible, you could feel this like empty echoing canyon of void, just of like everyone terrified about what it meant for the people that had just helped us do this incredible thing. That evening, Alicia Lopez, the mother of Corporal Hunter Lopez, was coming back to their home in Indio, California, when she saw two Marines in a white truck. I pulled into my driveway and they asked me if I was going to show Hard to see now, but originally under here were a bunch of letters that we had set aside from Hunter when... Herman and Alicia Lopez's home has become a shrine to their 22-year-old son, Hunter, who was killed in the bombing. They're still trying to understand what happened to their son that day. Hunter and some of his brothers and his brothers and sisters were able to, you know, do great acts in their last few minutes on this earth, but, you know, you, you, of course, wish that they were here with you. Strangers sent artwork, including a painting of Hunter carrying a child made from pictures they found on Hunter's social media. Hunter told them some of what he saw. I know he understood the seriousness of what was going on, the despair in the, in the hearts and the minds of a lot of the people that were trying to get out and get their families out. The desperation of the parents. Yeah. They're just now finding out more about those final moments, which, a year later, give them some comfort and solace. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in San Diego. Severe drought has dried up waterways around the world this year, and as water levels lower, rare glimpses into the past have emerged. German warships sunk in World War II are rising from the Danube. In China, 600-year-old Buddhist statues were discovered in the Yangtze River. And the Tiber River revealed ruins of a Roman bridge from the first century. The Pons Arianos, which at the time was the only bridge crossing of that part of the Tiber, may have been the bridge that St. Peter himself had crossed to his martyrdom. 
That is Nicholas Temple, Senior Professor of Architectural History at London Metropolitan University. He says the bridge could have been a significant crossing point for Roman armies and pilgrims, and he thinks this is a great opportunity to learn more about it. There are parts of the bridge which were not visible in the past because the drought is so severe and has disclosed lots of things about the substructure and certainly about the early history of the bridge. And in Spain, a prehistoric burial site is now fully visible. Some are calling it the Spanish Stonehenge. All that's left is a circle of tall stones, but at one time it was a grand dome. Ángel Castaño is president of a local cultural association. You can picture this as a big, huge igloo. The entrance, this kind of little tunnel door, was 12 meters long. Castaño thinks the site may have been more than just a communal tomb. I would compare it to building a cathedral in the Middle Ages. If you make such a huge effort, are you going to use it just for burial? Probably not. Castaño's organization wants to remove the stones from the water to better protect them. Meanwhile, in Glenrose, Texas, traces of life have just been revealed from way farther back, like 113 million years back. Jeff Davis is superintendent at Dinosaur Valley State Park. There, tracks from the T-Rex-like Acrocanthosaurus were left behind by the parched Paluxy River. Those tracks have three large toes. Think about a dinner plate and then add three or four inches on some of them. They roamed the region when it would have been covered by sticky mud and then flood water. Layers of sediment were laid on top of them more and more over millions of years. And then in the last few thousand years, the Paluxy River has carved back down through those layers and exposed the tracks. The drought may have brought new discoveries, but it has also brought disaster worldwide. One of the year's largest wildfires in Texas burned within a quarter mile of the park. A lot of places in the park, it looks like fall because the trees are so yellow. The low waters that made the prehistoric burial site in Spain visible have meant catastrophe for Spanish farmers. And the reappearance of so-called hunger stones drives home the point. The stones have marked low levels along European rivers during historic droughts. One in the Czech Republic simply reads, If you see me, then weep. Architectural history professor Nicholas Temple again on the stones. They got the marks saying this is the minimum level, and it's well beneath the, the minimum level. We had measures, ways in which we could articulate these changes, but with these measures now have gone off the scale. Once the rains come, it'll be a welcome relief, but it will also mean saying goodbye to these fines until the next drought. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come, the chair of the Federal Reserve says he will keep raising interest rates until inflation is under control and stocks took a dive. A mystery is shaking up South Carolina. Literally, we'll hear about a strangely high number of earthquakes in the state. In the forecast, it was pretty loud out there today. Strong thunderstorms have now moved out. We could still have some rain, though, especially before 8 o'clock tonight, mainly in eastern and northeastern mass. Some showers possible overnight, lows about 70. Then things dry off for the weekend. Tomorrow should be sunny and cooler, only rising to about 77. Sunday, gorgeous. Sunny and comfortable, right about 80 degrees. Tonight at Fenway Park, game one of a three-game series against Tampa Bay. Michael Walker throws the first pitch at 7:10. This is WBUR. It's 5:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com/gig. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's Politics Beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. 
Your car has a story too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Department of Justice has released a heavily redacted version of the affidavit that the FBI used to execute a search warrant on the Florida home of Donald Trump. Those documents make clear how the former president held on to top-secret government records despite months of attempts by the Justice Department to retrieve them. As NPR's Windsor Johnston tells us, the DOJ had pushed to keep the documents sealed during its ongoing investigation. Parts of the affidavit show that the Justice Department had probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction would be found at Trump's home. The document also showed that more than 180 classified documents were found among 15 boxes that the National Archives had obtained from Trump's estate earlier this year. Some of those files were mixed up with other records, loose and unlabeled, which prompted the archives to refer the case to the DOJ. NPR's Windsor Johnston. Some Tennessee politicians and activists are calling for a special legislative session to amend the state's abortion ban that took effect this week from member station WPLN. Paige Flager reports the law does not provide an explicit exception for many things. In Tennessee, doctors that provide abortions could be charged with a felony, and they would only be allowed to show a procedure was medically necessary after being charged. When the law was originally introduced in 2019, the bill's sponsors incorrectly told lawmakers it did include an exception for protecting the life of the pregnant person. Democratic Representative Gloria Johnson voted against the ban. We needed an exception. Folks on the House floor were told there was an exception. Tennesseans and those on the floor were lied to. Johnson is one of many calling for the session to amend the law to allow for special circumstances. For NPR News, I'm Paige Flager in Nashville. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The man who organized the placing of American flags on veterans' graves at the National Cemetery in Bourne has died. Paul Monty of Rainham was a Gold Star father. His son was killed in Afghanistan. State Representative Stephen Exaros is also a Gold Star father. Exaros remembers once breaking down about his son Nick's death and talking to Paul Monty about it. And he put his arm around me and he looked me in the eye and he said, Steve, God saw Nick doing good things and he had to take him to do great things. And this flush went through my body and those words gave me peace. Exara says he's thankful for Monty's friendship and hopes that he is at peace with his son. Parts of Massachusetts got some rain this afternoon along with storms, but it is not enough to reverse the ongoing drought. All the state is a some level of drought. Almost 40 percent is an extreme drought. And as WBR's Marion Wasser reports, climate change means we should expect to see more summers like this one in the future. When we think about drought in the U.S., we don't usually think about New England. But that doesn't mean that we are not drought prone as well. Leslie Ann Dupini Giroux is the Vermont state climatologist. She says as humans warm the planet, we're changing how water moves in the atmosphere, and that affects rain and temperature patterns. And what that means is that we're seeing more incidences of drought, more incidences of, of flooding. Some have termed the rapid onset drought we're experiencing a, quote, flash drought. It's causing crops to die, rivers to dry up, and wildfires to burn. 
Many cities and towns across the region have restricted water use. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. In Massachusetts, water restrictions are in place in more than 150 municipalities. The MBTA's Orange Line shutdown is creating an increase in blue bike ridership around Boston. A bike share system is offering free monthly passes during the line's month-long closure. Blue Bike says more than 17,000 people have signed up for passes since last Friday. That's about 35 times more new signups than normal before the shutdown. And new users make up nearly one-third of all Blue Bike ridership in the last week. Thousands of undergraduates are moving on to Massachusetts college campuses this weekend. Freshmen are showing up fresh off a high school experience profoundly disrupted by the pandemic. Joel McCarthy is an associate dean of students at UMass Lowell. He says the university is offering individualized guidance that's aimed at easing first year's anxieties about shared space and social life. I don't think it's that these students need their hand held. I think they've been through something really difficult. We all have over the past couple of years, and so they might need some additional support to transition to college that in the past they didn't need that. McCarthy says UMass Lowell's on-campus population will be much larger this year than it was last or in 2020. In the forecast, the strong summer storms have mostly pushed offshore now. However, the National Weather Service says it's possible that more stormy weather may come through eastern and northeastern Mass between now and 8 o'clock tonight. Overnight tonight, cloudy, a little bit cooler than it is right now, about 69 degrees overnight. And for tomorrow and sunny, uh, Sunday, sunny and comfortable in the mid to upper 70s. It is 73 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the popular summer activities include horseback riding, whitewater rafting, and this week, fighting inflation. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell was the star attraction there this morning at an annual economic conference. He gave a short but forceful address in which he promised interest rates will go up and stay up until Fed policymakers are confident that prices are once again under control. The speech triggered a sharp sell-off on Wall Street, where the Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled more than 1,000 points. NPR's Scott Horsley has been following all this. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon, Ari. There was a lot of anticipation for Powell's speech today. What did he say? Well, he was very direct. He said the Federal Reserve has the unconditional responsibility to get inflation back down to 2%, and that he and his colleagues plan to do that even if it causes some short-term pain. Uh, The Fed's number one tool for fighting inflation is raising interest rates. That helps curb demand and bring prices down. But Powell acknowledged there can be a human cost to that, including higher unemployment and more tepid economic growth. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. The Fed has already raised interest rates by two and a quarter percentage points since March, and Powell says in order to really curb demand, rates are going to have to go even higher. 
He did not offer any hints today of whether rates are going to go up half a point or three-quarters of a point at the next Fed meeting in September. He just reiterated that he and his colleagues will be watching the incoming economic data and that they're prepared to make adjustments depending on what those numbers show. So interest rates are going up, and then what? Well, Powell says interest rates are likely to stay up for some time to come. That should not come as a big surprise. The Fed's projections have shown rates likely to stay elevated through at least the end of next year. But some investors were apparently betting that the Fed could snuff out inflation quickly and then start lowering rates again. Powell poured cold water on that idea. Restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. The historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. And that obviously disappointed some investors. Stocks fell sharply. The Dow, as you mentioned, tumbled more than 3%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq, which is particularly sensitive to interest rates, fell almost 4%. There was some positive news on inflation from the Department of Commerce today. What does it show? Yeah, the Commerce Department's inflation yardstick, uh, yardstick, which is uh, monitored closely by the Fed, actually showed consumer prices fell between June and July, thanks in part to those uh, falling gasoline prices. If you take out food and energy, which uh, bounces around a lot, core prices rose only a tenth of a percent last month. And annual core inflation in July was actually the lowest it's been in nine months. So that is encouraging. Powell called it a welcome development. But he also warned that he and his colleagues are going to need to see more than one month's improvement before they're ready to celebrate. The Fed chairman said he is drawing on the historical record here. So what does history tell us? Yeah, Powell talked a little bit about the 1970s when policymakers really let inflation get out of control for a long period of time. Uh, So long, in fact, that people just came to expect prices would keep going up. That made it even harder to turn things around. Uh, When former Fed chairman Paul Volcker finally did crack down, it took a really deep recession to get inflation back in check. Now, that's not where we are right now. High inflation is still a relatively recent problem. It's not yet baked into people's thinking. That's why Pal and his colleagues are so uh, eager to get control over prices now before too much additional time passes. Of course, inflation has just about everyone's attention right now, which highlights a particular risk today. The longer the current bout of high inflation continues, the greater the chance that expectations of higher inflation will become entrenched. Powell's message is it's better to bite the bullet now and deal with the fallout of these higher interest rates. If you don't get control over inflation, he says, the economy doesn't work for anybody. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. A mystery is shaking people in South Carolina. Literally, an unusually large number of earthquakes has struck the state this year, and experts are not sure why. Nick Delacanal of member station WFAE takes us to a town close to where many of the quakes have hit. David Horn sits on his front porch, cooling under a fan. You can often find him on his porch. It's where he was last December 27th. That was the day the first earthquake hit the town of Elgin, where he lives, about 25 miles east of Columbia. I was sitting on the porch when the first one hit. This porch? Yes, on this porch right here. My wife was inside with one of the grandchildren. He remembers sudden shaking and a noise like thunder booming across the sky. And as soon as it happened, I got out of my chair and I went and told her, I said, that was an earthquake. I said, that was a three-point plus. Horn used to live in Alaska, where earthquakes are more common. His wife, Whitney, a lifelong South Carolinian, wasn't sure what was going on. Because I'd never experienced an earthquake. We're in South Carolina. You don't have earthquakes that you feel in South Carolina. 
Sure enough, it was a 3.3 magnitude earthquake. Too small to cause damage, but big enough to light up the town's Facebook page with dozens of excited comments. David said at first, he thought it was cool. Wow, an earthquake. I've heard there was a big fault line near here. And that's all I thought about it. Until the ground continued to shake. Days and months after that first quake, the ground would rumble while the horns were out shopping, or at night while in bed. Ah, there's an earthquake. And the ground continues to move under their feet. I mean, literally, it seems like we have an earthquake every week. It's not even a surprise anymore. The U.S. Geological Survey has recorded more than 60 small earthquakes near the town since December. The largest, a 3.6, rumbled through in June. All the shaking has fascinated geologists who say this is the longest-running series of earthquakes in recent South Carolina history. Scott Howard is South Carolina's state geologist. He says this is what's known as a swarm, that is, a series of small earthquakes with no apparent main shock. Well, it could be a, a magnitude 2, 3, 1, 2, you know, it just kind of bounces up and down. South Carolina is on a minor fault line, he says, and the state has had swarms before. They traced a series of small earthquakes in the 1970s to the creation of a new reservoir. Water and fluids tend to be always involved in, in faulting. This time, there's no clear explanation. Howard says it's possible heavy rain may have played a role early in the year, but it's hard to know for sure. Residents fear the swarms are building up to a big earthquake. Seismologists say that's unlikely. Still, emergency officials have told people to look into earthquake insurance. And some have, like Phil Crowley. He moved to Elgin a year ago. You know, what can we control? We can control getting insurance. Really, that's about it. There have been no reports of major damage so far, but the earthquakes keep coming. Crowley and his wife don't think a big one will hit, but they worry. She'll look at me when we're going to sleep and say, I hope it's not going to happen tonight. If it does, they're ready. They keep two bags packed with clothes and other essentials sitting by their front door, just in case. For NPR News, I'm Nick Delacanal in Elgin, South Carolina. The student loan forgiveness plan that President Biden announced this week is controversial. Some say it's not enough money. Others say it shouldn't happen at all. Then there are the questions of how it works. Who qualifies for debt relief and how can they apply? We have some answers to those questions on this afternoon's episode of NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. national battle over what types of books should be allowed in schools has intensified in Missouri. A new state law, which applies to both public and private schools, makes it a crime to give students books that contain sexually explicit material. School librarians in Missouri are pulling books off shelves before the law takes effect Sunday. St. Louis Public Radio's Kate Grumke reports. Missouri's new book law has a list of things that are considered sexually explicit. Pictures of sex acts or genitals, for example. And it's narrowly focused on visual media like illustrated or graphic novels. Teachers, librarians, or other school officials could face up to a year in jail or a fine if they give a student the book or other material. Republican State Senator Rick Bratton, who represents a district on the western border of Missouri, south of Kansas City, proposed the legislation. He says he's trying to combat widespread inappropriate content in public schools. To stop 
sexualizing little kids and putting forth before them you know, materials that are extremely graphic. In response to the new law, some librarians across Missouri are going page by page through books, looking for anything that could get them in legal trouble. They worry this is a slippery slope. Librarian Melissa Corey is president of the Missouri Association of School Librarians and says she and her colleagues go through a careful review process to make sure their books are age-appropriate, relevant, and represent diverse viewpoints. Reading is the most important way to develop empathy for others. Um, We have books being published by individuals that even 20 to 30 years ago would not have been published. And so looking at those diverse voices... They, they really have an important place um, in our school library collections. Still, there's some confusion over how exactly the law will be applied. Emily Omahundro is an education lawyer for Ed Council, which works with school districts in Missouri. She spent the last couple weeks holding back-to-school talks to answer educators' legal questions. Inevitably, when I get to this particular topic, I see a little bit of panic arise in our librarians and our media specialists. Omahundro points out the law has exceptions for art, science, and anthropology. But there's still the question of how that will be defined. And she's worried that while the statute narrowly defines the crime, that the outcome of parental complaints is going to be focused more on material that does have an LGBTQIA author, maybe, or themes. That's been the case with this trend so far. Last year, the American Library Association says across the country, there was an increase in efforts to remove books from schools, especially books about LGBTQ people or people of color. I don't care about sexual identity or sexual orientation. For me, that is not a factor. That's Andy Wells, president of the Missouri chapter of No Left Turn in Education. The national group has a rating system for books it considers inappropriate. This is the first, I hope, of more legislation that will get graphic information out of children's hands. Librarian Corey says the Missouri Association of School Librarians is trying to support its members in this difficult time. So this is a calling. It is a passion for us. We we really do believe in our mission of growing lifelong readers. She's encouraging librarians to talk to their school boards and administrators about their response to Missouri's new law. For NPR News, I'm Kate Grumke in St. Louis. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the legacy of iconic Hammond organ jazz musician Joey DeFrancesco, who died yesterday. Tonight at Fenway Park, game one of a three-game series against Tampa Bay. Michael Walker throws the first pitch at 7-10. Patriots wrap up their preseason tonight in Las Vegas against the Raiders. The Pants have one win and one loss on the preseason. Tonight's game is at 8-15. Stormy weather today has mostly pushed offshore now, but the National Weather Service says it's possible that more rough weather may come through eastern and northeastern Mass between now and 8 p.m., Tonight, a few leftover showers, lingering clouds, about 69 degrees. Then things dry up in time for the weekend. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, breezy, highs about 77. Then just as gorgeous on Sunday, could nudge 80 degrees. This is WBUR. 
it's going to lead to some level of debt forgiveness for probably around 40 million people. And it's going to entirely wipe out the balances of around 20 million people. So in one swoop, nearly half the people in the system are going to be taken out of it entirely. There's never been anything like this that happened before with the student loan system. I'm Natalie Kitroeff. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We hear a lot about employee burnout these days, and it is affecting even people whose work, quite literally, is play. <gasps> First try, baby! Video game streamers on Twitch and other live streaming platforms are burning out and logging off. And unlike many other workers, they don't have benefits or structured resources to fall back on. Keller Gordon reported this out for NPR's Join the Game column. And Keller joins us now. Hey there. Hey, how's it going? It is going well. I got to say, being a streamer, playing video games for a living, um, that sounds like fun at work. Why, why are people burning out? Well, people are burning out because platforms like Twitch aren't just playing video games in a vacuum. People are playing video games in real time on the internet for anybody to watch. That means they're also interacting with hundreds or thousands of viewers at a time, and this can be up to 50 to 60 hours a week. And if they want to retain their viewers, it can be really difficult to take breaks, too. It's funny. I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way. But in a sense, it's something like an actor on stage and that you're on and you're performing live for an audience. But in the case of a streamer, the audience is interacting with you. Um, It's a ton of pressure. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. There are a number of challenges having to keep a schedule, not taking those breaks and having to deal with difficult viewers on your stream Here is Stephen Flavel, or Jorbs, as he's known on Twitch. I actually wanted people to be there talking with me while I played. And that worked really well for me when I had 15 viewers on Twitch. Around about when I had 200 viewers, it started to get exhausting. Since then, I've had like 2,000 people. And when you have that many people asking you questions and telling you what to do, it just becomes absolutely unmanageable. And I actually started having panic attacks. I spoke with another streamer who preferred we only use his Twitch name, Halion. He told me that he was getting really tired of playing Hades, a game where you literally battle your way out of hell. The monotony really started bringing him down. As I ran out of things to do, I became more bored, which made me less animated and other people started to notice. So it kind of slowly devolved into that over time. I can imagine that having to battle your way out of hell day after day after day would get, <laughs> would get tiring. One other thing that occurs to me, Keller, this it's an independent gig. Most streamers are self-employed. Of the people you spoke to, did any have support resources to fall back on? Some do have support, like Stephen Flavel, who you heard earlier. He's got a couple of folks that keep tabs on his email, assist with promotional stuff, which definitely helps his work-life balance. But a lot of streamers don't have that support system. And I even spoke with a manager from a gaming entertainment company who said that having a support system is one of the key things that can help you maintain that work-life balance. Yeah, well, that's probably true across many industries. The other thing I think going on here, or at least I wonder, is on a platform like Twitch, on a platform like YouTube, these are they're competitive. You have content creators jockeying with each other for viewers, for attention. How does that influence the kind of pressure you're talking about? It can definitely make things harder, especially early on in a streamer's career when they're trying to gain more viewers. 
Favel told me that when he first started streaming, he was nervous because he didn't want to leave his computer for more than a few minutes at a time because he didn't want people logging off. Luckily, as his popularity grew, it was easier for him to take breaks because his audience was more loyal and they had a better understanding. Hmm. So is that the way forward here? Or do other Twitch streamers will follow in Flavel's footsteps? I think so. Burnout is an increasingly important topic these days, and I hope more full-time streamers get the chance to focus on their mental health and well-being. But it does matter how popular you are, which is another issue in itself. Keller Gordon, contributor and reporter for NPR's Join the Game. Thanks, Keller. Thanks, Mary Louise. The jazz world has lost its preeminent specialist of the Hammond organ. Joey DeFrancesco turned heads for decades, starting with his major label debut at age 17. His wife confirmed the news on social media this morning, but did not mention a cause of death. He was 51 years old. Critic Nate Chenen of member station WRTI in Philadelphia is here to help us remember DeFrancesco. Thanks for taking the time. You're most welcome. What made his music stand out? Well, he was just an incredible virtuoso, you know, and and the Hammond organ is this very distinctive instrument. You know, when you're behind the console of an organ, you really have the power of an orchestra. And so when I think about his playing, I, I think about this just locomotive drive, um, and at the same time, incredible, almost unprecedented finesse. You know, mm. he was he was just such an incredible technician, but he paired that with this wonderful feeling for connection and, you know, always deeply rooted in, in the blues. That combination of technical skill and style. Very much so. You know, he was a student of the instrument, um, really understood the languages of, you know, everyone from Jimmy Smith, one of his heroes, to, to Larry Young, to Shirley Scott. You know, he really knew everybody and absorbed it all at a very young age and then completely synthesized it and took the language of the instrument further. You know, he, he was a, a pioneer in that sense. You're based in Philadelphia, and he had roots there. Tell us about it. Joey DeFrancesco was, uh, and this is not an exaggeration, Philly jazz royalty. His father, Papa John DeFrancesco, who is still with us, was a an accomplished organ player coming up. And so um, Joey learned firsthand. He's a second-generation Philly jazz organist. He learned not only from his dad, but also from um, local players like Shirley Scott and Trudy Pitts. And, you know, came up with a, a generation of players that included bassist Christian McBride and Questlove and guitarist Kurt Rosenwinkel. So, you know, he was someone that the scene was watching from a very young age, you know, really like nine, ten years old. And he fulfilled that promise very quickly. How have other musicians and fans responded to the news today? You know, everyone is devastated. Um, it's really, really difficult because, you know, as you noted, he was only 51. Um, and also a musician really universally beloved, um, not just for his artistry, but also for his presence and his warmth and personality. Just a really uh, wonderful, ebullient guy who um, made every musical situation um, feel that much brighter, you know, just gave it a lift. 
And also, you know, indisputably, um, the greatest sort of master of his generation on this instrument, you know, um, someone that we were really looking to as a North Star. And so, uh, so it's a tremendous sense of loss that everyone feels right now. That's Nate Chenen from WRTI in Philadelphia, remembering Joey DeFrancesco. Thank you, Nate. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. The strongest thunderstorms have moved on out. We could still have some more rain, especially before 8 o'clock tonight. Showers overnight tonight. Low temperatures about 70 degrees, which is where it is right about now. And then for tomorrow, sunny and cooler, only rising to 77. For Sunday, should be a beautiful day. Sunny and comfortable right around 80 degrees. A reminder, the Sumner Tunnel is going to be shut down again this weekend for restoration work. It closes to traffic at 11 o'clock tonight, reopens at 5 Monday morning. The tunnel between East Boston and downtown will be closed every weekend through next spring, except for holidays. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Stocks took a nosedive today after the Federal Reserve Chair said the central bank will not back off its fight against inflation. This was the second straight week the market ended with a downturn. Our story is coming up on this Friday, August 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more laws restricting access to abortion care are taking effect this week. We speak with a woman who remembers what happened after she was raped at age 11. People in today's society don't remember what it was like before pre-route. The serious drought in Massachusetts is what some experts are calling a flash drought. This kind of year-to-year variability that we see in precipitation seems to be becoming more pronounced. The effects of flash droughts coming up. It's 6.01. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has pledged to keep raising interest rates until he and his colleagues are confident inflation is under control. NPR Scott Horsley reports Powell delivered a forceful message at an economic conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Powell says the central bank has an unconditional responsibility to get inflation under control. 
He says Fed policymakers will keep raising interest rates until that's accomplished, even if that results in some short-term hardship, such as slower economic growth and higher unemployment. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. New numbers from the Commerce Department show that inflation eased somewhat in July. Powell called that a welcome development, but warned it'll take more than one month of improving price data to show that inflation is coming down. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Powell's remarks led to a major route for stocks today. All three of the major stock market indices down 3% or more. The worst day for blue chips in three months. The Dow fell more than 1,000 points. The Nasdaq was down 497 points. The S&P dropped 141 points. President Biden, meanwhile, today said the economy is looking good, but has a ways to go. Biden making his remarks as he was departing from the White House. Earlier in the day, Biden marked Women's Equality Day by blasting abortion restrictions that have taken effect in some states, calling them beyond the pale. A number of GOP-led states have tightened their restrictions on abortion since the U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. More former President Trump's White House and 2020 election campaign aides, including former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and campaign lawyer Sidney Powell, could be forced to appear in front of a special grand jury in Georgia. Sam Greenglass from member station WAB has the story. The new filings show prosecutors reaching further into Trump's inner circle as they investigate efforts by Trump and his team to overturn the state's 2020 election result. Prosecutors note Mark Meadows' participation in a January 2021 call when Trump pressured Georgia's Secretary of State to find him votes and point out that Meadows showed up uninvited to an audit of absentee ballot signatures in Metro Atlanta. Sidney Powell prominently hawked Trump's election fraud claims and participated in legal efforts to challenge votes. Powell also reportedly helped oversee efforts to access voting machines in several battleground states, including Georgia. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. According to an FBI affidavit released today, 14 of the 15 boxes of documents recovered from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate earlier this year contained documents marked classified. That's based on the affidavit, which despite numerous redactions, put forth the most detailed description to date of the government's records being stored at Trump's Florida property. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Paul Monty, a Rainham man who began an effort to place flags on the graves of military veterans in Massachusetts, has died. Monty's son, Jared, was killed in military service in Afghanistan in 2006. Former WBUR producer and reporter Alex Ashlock covered Monty's efforts to honor veterans such as his son. Paul Monty was a former high school teacher who taught everyone a great deal about how to handle the unspeakable loss of a child. Paul started Operation Flags for Vets, where volunteers place flags on all the graves, including Jared's at the Massachusetts National Cemetery on Cape Cod for every Veterans Day and every Memorial Day. It's been going on since 2011, but it will always bear his mark, his legacy. He started it not to honor Jared, he always said, but to honor all American veterans. Monty kept and rode in his son's pickup after his death. The story inspired a popular country song, I Drive Your Truck, by Lee Bryce. Cambridge-based drug maker Moderna is suing competitors Pfizer and BioNTech. Moderna claims that two other companies stole its proprietary technology to create a COVID vaccine. 
Both the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech's vaccines use messenger RNA to provoke defenses against the coronavirus. The lawsuit seeks compensation. Pfizer says it will vigorously defend itself, says its vaccine was based on its own technology. Massachusetts' two U.S. senators say local bans that prevent police departments from hiring chiefs from outside those departments are harmful. Revere and Waltham have the bans. A WBUR investigation with ProPublica revealed the policy in Revere resulted in the city's police department promoting to chief an officer previously accused of bullying and sexual harassment. Senator Ed Markey says the Revere ordinance raises civil rights concerns and that local and state officials should lift the bans. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants the rules to be reexamined to ensure fairness in hiring. It's 6.06 in the forecast clouds with some showers off and on until about 8 o'clock tonight. Maybe some lingering clouds still damp overnight tonight. About 69 degrees, sunny and cool over the weekend. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. New abortion bans are taking effect across the country this week, some with virtually no exceptions. The nation has seen these kinds of laws before. And in a moment, NPR's Sarah McCammon is going to bring us one woman's story about living at a time when there was no right to an abortion, even for victims of rape. But first, I want to ask Sarah to round up the new developments this week. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. All right. So walk us through where these new abortion bans have kicked in this week and and what the impact is so far. So yesterday, Texas, Tennessee, and Idaho all saw trigger laws take effect. These, of course, are those laws written in anticipation of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now, these are taking effect in states, Mary Louise, that already had abortion restrictions in place. But these new laws make providing most or all abortions a felony and providers could face jail time. A North Dakota judge also this week blocked that state's trigger ban. That was set to take effect today, but it's on hold at least for now. Okay. Elizabeth Smith with the Center for Reproductive Rights says when you look at the map, abortion access increasingly looks like a patchwork system depending on geography. Without federal protection for abortion rights, access is completely determined by where someone lives and their ability to leave their state if there's no access in their state. So now at least 11 states have total or near total abortion bans, along with several others like Georgia that still have early restrictions starting around six weeks of pregnancy. Right. And again, you said 11 states now with total or near total bans. Any exception for rape or incest? Some of them do. In Texas and Tennessee, though, there are no exceptions for rape or incest. And those are just the latest states to implement laws along those lines. You may remember the case of a 10-year-old girl this summer who had become pregnant as a result of rape and had to travel to Indiana from her home state of Ohio, which has a near-total abortion ban, no exception for rape. In the aftermath of that case, I interviewed a woman named Elaine who had come forward to tell her story about what happened to her many years ago. And just a warning, the story does contain references to sexual assault. Elaine says when she saw those news stories about the 10-year-old in Ohio this summer, it was hard for her to look away. Well, I knew it was coming. I knew that it was only a matter of time before someone like me hit the news and that a doctor would, would go public on the effects of these laws. And I was sad and angry 
That doctor was Caitlin Bernard, an OBGYN in Indiana. Her story about a young patient who was unable to get an abortion at home in Ohio after a ban there took effect prompted backlash from conservative leaders. Without producing any evidence, Indiana's Republican attorney general questioned the doctor's credibility and threatened to investigate her. For Elaine, the story took her back to 1969, when she was just 11, a sixth grader growing up in Amarillo, Texas, the youngest of five in a big Catholic family. I was a tomboy. I liked sports. I rode my bike everywhere. I walked miles and miles and miles barefoot. I was kind of precocious. I was kind of the class clown, actually. Now 65 and living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Elaine has asked us to call her only by her middle name because she fears her family could face backlash from her telling the story from her childhood. I shared a room with my 14-year-old sister, and we went to bed at about 10 p.m., and at about 1 in the morning, all of a sudden I saw the door open to our bedroom. A man snuck in and climbed into her bed. As her sister slept across the room, Elaine says the man raped her, threatening to kill her unless she stayed quiet. Eventually, her sister did wake up and chased the man out of the house. That's when Elaine says all hell broke loose as her parents and the rest of her siblings also woke up to her screaming. My mom called the police and our family doctor, and he examined me. And I didn't know this until I got the police reports recently, but... He reported to the police that I had, in fact, been raped. So that's what happened that night. In a police report dated January 15, 1969, 2.58 a.m., Elaine and her family recounted those events to Amarillo police. The report, reviewed by NPR, describes the suspect as a white man between 20 and 30 years old. He was never caught, but the trauma from that night would stay with Elaine in her mind and her body long afterward. One of my sisters told me many years later that after I got back from the hospital, I was taking a bath, of course, and I was singing in the bathtub. And knowing what I know now, I think that's a pretty good indication that I was dissociative, that I had checked out. Elaine was in the early stages of puberty and didn't know what to look out for after the rape, but her mother was paying attention. Several weeks later, around the time of Elaine's 12th birthday in April, her mother said they needed to go back to the doctor. And she took me to our family doctor, the same one that examined me in the hospital, and the same doctor who had delivered me 11 years before. Elaine says she didn't understand then what was happening. But now, as a retired pharmacist, she does. My mom just said, we've got to, you know, fix some problems down there. And I said, okay, you're fine. And what I remember about that was the pain. And I didn't know what he was doing, but now, through adult eyes, looking and with a medical background, I know that he was curataging. My anesthesia was squeezing my mother's hand. It, it didn't take long, but it was painful. It was dilation and curatage, a common abortion procedure known as DNC. Elaine says her mother explained what had happened a few years later when she was in her mid-teens. When she reflects on it now, she says she's grateful for how her mother, who died in 2010, handled an impossible situation. And she says she understands that some people have strong moral objections to abortion. My mother was very Catholic, 
and this is what I would point out to people who have this kind of theoretical vision of how they would react in this kind of a situation. I'm here to tell you, in this kind of a situation, you would throw out your religion in half a second. There's no question. It's easy to say what other people should do when it's theoretical. She couldn't fully face the trauma from her experience for many years after she became a mother. When I turned 40 and I had an 11-year-old daughter, a lot of my grief was really realizing what it must have been like for my mother to go through something like that. I looked at my own 11-year-old daughter. There, I, I can't blame my mother for anything. She did the best she could in a terrible situation. So she did the right thing. Elaine spent about three years in therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And she says she's sharing her story now because she wants to make clear that these situations do happen, even if people would rather not think about them. I think a big part of the reason why we're seeing these draconian laws is because it's been 50 years since Roe was passed and a few generations have grown up and enough people in today's society don't remember what it was like pre-Roe. In 1969, abortion was illegal in Texas except to save a pregnant woman's life as it is again now. While the rape itself was thoroughly documented by Amarillo police at the time, no such records of the abortion appear to exist. Elaine's doctor died decades ago, and abortions were often carried out in secret, says historian Leslie Regan, author of the book When Abortion Was a Crime. She says people who had resources or connections could sometimes find doctors who discreetly offered the procedure if the doctor felt it was warranted. Something like this where the patient knows the doctor, the doctor knows the patient and the family, they could be very sympathetic to the situation, which means they would do it. I mean, my guess would be he probably never wrote anything down about this, because why would he? NPR spoke to two family members who say they remember hearing about the rape for years, including one who recalls discussing the abortion more recently. Regan says what's happening now looks very much like a repeat of the past. This is the result. This is going to be one of the results. The other results are some people will go all the way through pregnancies and bear children and will be forced into birth. Elaine says she sometimes thinks about what would have happened to her without her family doctor if she'd been forced to continue the pregnancy as a sixth grader, still reeling from the trauma of rape. But I probably would have been shipped off somewhere to have the baby. But for me, being four foot ten, 100 pounds, it would have been a guaranteed C-section. No question. Just the thought of that is just abhorrent. Now retired with three grown children, living with her husband in a house high on a hill overlooking the mountains around Santa Fe, Elaine says she feels compelled to speak up for girls like her who can't. What these children need above all is for it to be over. They need the trauma to stop. If I were to meet Dr. Bernard's 10-year-old patient, I would take her face in my hands and I would look in her eyes and I would say, this was not your fault. This was a bad, bad man who did this to you. And you're going to have a lot of people who love you, who are going to help you get through this, and you're going to be okay. Not your fault. 
More than 50 years later, Elaine says she got through her unthinkable experience with support from her family and a doctor willing to risk breaking the law to help her. Reporting there from NPR's Sarah McCammon. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. On Wall Street, today, stocks tanked. The Dow plummeted 3%, more than 1,000 points, to finally settle at 32,283. S&P lost 3.3%. It finished the session at 4,058. The Nasdaq fell even more, almost 4%, to close at 12,142. Marketplace has all the details coming up in just about 10 minutes. The average price at the pump continues to slip in the state. The latest survey by AAA Northeast shows the statewide average at $4.10 a gallon. That's down by 41 cents a gallon from a month ago and 10 cents down from last week. And shares in Burlington-based Everbridge, Inc. rose 17 percent in trading today. The surge follows a report from Bloomberg that the tech company is exploring a sale. Everbridge creates software that helps organizations manage crises and emergencies by way of tools such as public notification text messages. After some raucous weather this afternoon, thunderstorms have now moved out. We could have some more rain, though, especially before 8 o'clock tonight, mainly in eastern and northeastern Massachusetts. Overnight tonight, temperatures around 70. Tomorrow and Sunday, sunny and cooler, only rising to the mid to upper 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Federation for Children with Special Needs. Celebrate 50 years of a special education revolution. September 10th, fcsn.org slash gala2022. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. You can see signs of the drought in Massachusetts nearly everywhere you look. Maybe your lawn is a crisp brown. Maybe you've smelled the smoke from one of the 100 or so wildfires this month. Maybe a river near you is down to a trickle. It's a strange whiplash after the rain-soaked summer we had last year. But as WBR's Miriam Wasser reports, weather extremes are likely part of our climate future, and that includes what are called flash droughts. To put it bluntly, it kind of just stopped raining this summer. Parts of the Northeast that typically get nine inches over June, July, and August have gotten a fraction of that. On Dave Dumrask's vegetable farm in Dracut, things are pretty bad. The corn stalks are brown and the ears are smaller than usual. Instead of a carpet of green leaves, the potato field is patchy. So we're basically at the, at the point now where we're selecting which crops to continue to grow and which crops to basically allow to suffer. Take the corn. He staggers the planting and harvesting and has gotten two okay pickings so far. 
but the next two, he says, are a crapshoot. So basically, I'm not watering those uh, last two plantings. Uh, I'm hoping for rain. Dumeresk is the founder and owner of Farmer Dave's. The 100-acre, mostly organic farm is spread out across five properties in northeast Massachusetts, one of the epicenters of the drought this summer. Dumeresk relies on small man-made ponds for irrigation water. He peers over the rocky edge of one of them. 12 feet down, a gasoline-powered pump grumbles as it sucks up the liquid dregs. The water that's left is only a couple inches deep. And I told the guys, I'm, I'm just like, do whatever you have to do to drain these ponds as quick as possible because the water's not helping the crops sitting in the pond. The pond is fed by groundwater. He says that this summer, it takes about two days for it to refill two feet, far below what it would normally be. Farming in much of New England right now is a game of risk, a series of ongoing calculations and tough decisions. Does he completely neglect the corn to give the potatoes the water they need? And what about the asparagus? It won't be ready to harvest until next spring. Basically, I'm letting the asparagus go, but I know that I'm reducing next spring's harvest to try to get more potatoes for this winter. Dumeresk is not alone. The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources says that farmers across the state are struggling with this year's drought. Many have reported significant crop losses or seen their hay fields dry up. It's reminiscent of the droughts in 2020 and 2016, and it's in sharp contrast to last summer and the summer of 2018 when New England got a ton of rain. This kind of year-to-year variability that we see in precipitation seems to be becoming more pronounced. David Bout is a hydrology professor at UMass Amherst. He says if you look back in history, it's typical for the Northeast to have wet periods and dry periods. Generally speaking, you know, we would have a dry period, let's say, once in every 10 years. But in the last decade or so, things have changed. He says we're seeing more frequent, rapid onset, and acute droughts, what some experts are calling flash droughts. Complicating matters further, this year's drought may have started before some groundwater aquifers had fully recovered from the 2020 drought. So farmers like Dumeresk may have started off this year at a hydrological disadvantage. Scientists say it's hard to attribute any of this directly to climate change, but as humans warm the planet, we're changing the atmospheric patterns that shape our weather systems, and our weather extremes are getting more extreme. Nowadays, when we think about drought conditions, it's not just the water, but it's also how hot the temperatures are. And so flash droughts and high temperatures and dry air kind of go together. Leslie Ann Dupini Giroux is the Vermont State Climatologist and a professor at the University of Vermont. She says drought is a systems level phenomenon. Temperature, humidity, soil moisture, the rate at which surface water evaporates, even how much water plants suck in through their roots and exhale as vapor. It all matters. So do rainfall patterns. In the Northeast, we're seeing more quick and heavy rainstorms because of climate change. It's hard for the water from these sudden downpours to absorb into the soil. This means more of it ends up as runoff. Back on Dumeresk's farm in Dracut, the new normal is uncertainty and added costs. A drought year like this summer can cost him an extra sixty dollars to $100,000. He has to hire extra people to run the irrigation equipment, and he runs the pumps constantly. 
Yeah, so you have the increased labor costs, you have the increased fuel costs, and then you also have the increased maintenance costs and purchase costs of replacement equipment. Despite all this, Dumaris considers himself lucky. He's been investing in drip irrigation and no-till farming equipment, so his operation already uses less water than it might otherwise. He's also expanding some of his irrigation ponds to help hedge against drought years in the future. And you always hope that the rains are going to start to fall eventually. Until then, he says he'll just keep pumping whatever water he can get. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Hospitals and doctors around the country are facing harassment, even death threats, over the medical care they offer to transgender kids. In many cases, they have been the subject of posts by a Twitter account called Libs of TikTok. Despite the threats and harassment, this account continues to post fresh material, which may tell us something about what major online platforms, such as Twitter, consider to be threatening behavior. NPR's Shannon Bond has been following this. Hey there. Hi. Okay, tell me a little bit more about this account, Libs of TikTok. Yeah, so this is an account with 1.3 million Twitter followers, and it regularly reposts videos and social media posts from regular people, teachers, schools, and institutions. And often these are taken out of context and framed to fuel outrage and to cast LGBTQ people as pedophiles. And, you know, Mary Louise, this comes amid, you know, a broader rise in anti-LGBTQ sentiment on the right. And this account has become very influential. These videos it posts often end up on Fox News. And where do children's hospitals come into this picture? Well, in the past few weeks, this account has been posting a lot about children's hospitals, as you said, that provide health care to transgender kids. And in some cases, it's made false claims, like that hospitals are performing gender-affirming hysterectomies on young children. And I want to stop here to emphasize that this is not true. The hospitals say they do not do these surgeries specifically on patients under the age of 18. But the hospitals say these posts have sparked this wave of harassment and threats. I spoke with Dr. Angela K. Getfert, who runs the gender health program at Children's Minnesota in Minneapolis. That hospital has not been targeted, but they've been watching this all play out. So I think the fact that it, you know, has somewhere the message has gotten through that it's okay to attack um, physicians, pediatricians, children's hospitals in this way um, is just a really disturbing societal trend. And yet, Shannon, the attacks continue. Um, This account continues to post. Is Twitter doing anything about this? Does Twitter consider this harassment? I mean, it's kind of hard to tell, right? So Twitter, as well as Facebook and Instagram, where this account also posts, they all have rules against hate speech, harassment, including what's called brigading, where people coordinate to pile onto a target. The thing is, the Libs of TikTok account isn't making direct threats itself, but these posts appear to be encouraging other people to do so. And we've seen other instances where this account has posted about pride events, drag story hours at public libraries, and then right-wing extremist groups have shown up in those places. So this question, you know, for the platforms is, is Libs of TikTok responsible for any of this impact? Now, Twitter and Facebook wouldn't comment on the account, and I did reach out to the account owner for comment. She replied. She said she was open to an interview, but then she didn't respond when I tried to schedule it and didn't respond to any of my written questions. Hmm. What sort of impact has this had on, on hospitals, on doctors who work there? I mean, you can imagine it's been very difficult. This, of course, affects the safety of staff at hospitals. It's a resource drain to deal with these kinds of threats. 
And then there are wider ripple effects, right? I mean, there are impacts on patients who need this evidence-based medical care, and it affects other patients too. If hospitals' communications or websites get overwhelmed because of the volume of threats that they're that they're receiving, and so you know, there's a lot to contend with here. Providers I spoke with say they're worried that there could be a chilling effect if transgender healthcare is even more stigmatized than it already is. That this could change how doctors practice, and then it could make it harder to get funding for research into the best care. Okay, thank you, Shannon. Thanks, Mary Louise. NPR Shannon Bond. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering online undergraduate degree completion in interdisciplinary studies. Build off previously completed college credits and earn your bachelor's degree in as few as 30 months. Learn more at bu.org. Edu slash met.